the global order is changing. Neoliberalism is under unprecedented strain. There's a general sense that the rules by which our societies have been structured for the last several decades have broken down, and that our leaders and our institutions have failed us. If neoliberalism was the economic base to the globalization superstructure, what will the consequences of this shift be on the lives of ordinary people? Join Globalization Cafe as we offer uncompromising political and economic analysis on the global issues that affect our everyday lives. Because the political conversation matters. Mr. Chairman, Malaysia condemns and totally rejects the unilateral decision by the United States to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and to relocate its embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Such a move undermines all efforts towards finding a comprehensive, just and durable solution to the Palestinian-Israeli conflict. Malaysian Prime Minister Najib Razak there articulating his government's rejection of the shift in American policy to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital, speaking there at the extraordinary meeting of the Organization of Islamic Countries held this week in Istanbul. But while we might expect such criticism of Trump's moves from majority Muslim or Arab countries, the criticism hasn't stopped there. Close American allies, including the British and the Canadian governments, have said that they will not follow suit and have rejected the changing status of Jerusalem on similar grounds, that it runs contrary to international law and international norms and is unhelpful to the peace process. But what is the connection between broad concepts like international law and international norms and what life is really like for the inhabitants of a city like Jerusalem or for Israel and Palestine in general? Well, to answer this question, I've been joined today by an absolutely fantastic colleague at the University of Ottawa, Dr. Nadia Abuzara. Hello. Hi, Nadia. How are you doing? I'm well. <laughs> I didn't. It was a British number, and I was like, "What?" <laughs> oh, oh yeah, I forgot. It's because I'm calling you through Skype, so I can uh, I can record what oh, you say. Oh, okay, that sounds good. I think I'm ready to start. My name is Nadia Abuzera. I'm an associate professor of international development and global studies at the University of Ottawa in Canada. I teach undergraduate and graduate students and supervise masters and PhD dissertations on subjects related to our school of international development and global studies on subjects concerning colonialism, on subjects concerning human rights, concerning health and education and the environment. I teach courses in social movements in equity and human rights. I also teach special courses on mobility and migration. I am a member of the Human Rights Research and Education Center at the University of Ottawa. I am co-author with Adeke of the book Unfree in Palestine, Registration, Identity Documentation and Movement Restriction, uh, which is published by Pluto Press in 2013. So um, last Wednesday, Trump made this dramatic 
shift in American policy to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and also say that he was going to move the U.S. embassy there. What's your reactions to this announcement? Well, it was good to see the international community respond very quickly in the United Nations, which is a very appropriate venue to be responding. The statements that President Trump made are somewhat inappropriate. It is not his position to be declaring what is and what is not, you know, territorial boundaries, for instance, of other countries. That That is not his position. That would be more appropriate to the countries themselves or um, particularly to international law as framed through the United Nations and um, international law prior even to the formation of the United Nations. Okay, um, so your your book's about, um, it's called On Free in Palestine. What what does Jerusalem mean in the context of Palestine? Well, it, it means many things, and I may not answer this question in the way that other people might answer it. What I'd like to do is go through a few statistics that represent some of the major occurrences for daily life in Palestine, including in Jerusalem. And they just show the struggle that Palestinians experience simply to be Palestinian, simply to live and to work and to raise a family in Jerusalem. So in the less than the past 20 years, some 10,000 people have been killed in Palestine, Israel, which nine out of 10 have been Palestinian killed by the Israeli military. So that's some, you know, some 9,000 have been killed, many more thousands injured, and 6,000 Palestinians have been taken as political prisoners serving administrative detention. It includes women, it includes children. So at any given time, some 6,000 are taken prisoner in Israeli prisons, many of whom are kept there without charge. So administrative detention means that there is no charge, there is no reason given for the person being held in prison. And these prisons are famous for torture or infamous for torture, terrible conditions, a series of hunger strikes, cutting off ties to family members, um, very, very severe conditions for essentially civilians, um, not criminals, who have been taken prisoner. Meanwhile, another statistic is that some 3,000 people, nearly 3,000 people in Jerusalem, only in the past 14 years, have been made homeless in the city of Jerusalem. And how are they made homeless? It is because their homes are demolished. So that includes some 1,500 children. Um, So some 1,500 children have been left homeless because of home demolition in Jerusalem. And the urban planning regime in Jerusalem is such that home demolitions are a punitive action generally taken because people are Palestinian. Were these homes belonging to someone other than Palestinians? They would not be demolished. You, your your own research has been on uh, uh, on family uh, reunification in particular. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that means and and how that's relevant to the uh, how those statistics and the conditions faced by Palestinians relevant to that question? I have a new statistic for the answer to that question, which is that 
some 14,000 Palestinians have been forced out of Jerusalem. And these are, I mean, I, I couldn't speak to all 14,000 cases, but many of these are family members where some family members are still in Jerusalem and other family members are told that they must leave. And so life is very, very difficult for people in Jerusalem because their their ability to remain is actually very precarious. There's, uh, for many, many years, um, bizarre policy has been put in place called the center of life. If a Palestinian cannot prove through extensive documentation that their center of life at any given moment is Jerusalem. So if they're studying in university overseas, they need to prove that their center of life is Jerusalem. If their studies in overseas jeopardize that center of life policy, you know, that center of life um, proof, if you like, then then that person may never be allowed to live again as they have, you know, been born and raised in Jerusalem. And so this is the case for 14,000 Palestinians in recent years um, who have been forced out of Jerusalem. So I'm not talking about the thousands who were forced out in 1948, in the 1950s, the 1960s, and particularly 1967. I'm not talking about a product of war. Um, so many, many more have been forced out through those series of events. But I'm talking about a, a bureaucratic procedure that tells people that the place they were born and raised, where their parents and their grandparents and their great-grandparents and so on were from, uh, is no longer their home and they're not allowed to return. They're not allowed to build a home. They're not allowed to raise children there. They're not allowed um, to remain there, to, to be there. Not at all. So, you know, Jerusalem has a... It's a very, very difficult place to be a Palestinian. So we're right in thinking that these similar conditions, this center of life requirements, so wouldn't be required of, of Israelis living in Jerusalem, or I presume not really required of anybody else anywhere else in the world, really, are they are they unique to Palestine as far as we know? There are very rare cases in the world where citizenship and nationality is stripped from individuals who, um, by all international law, should have those. And so the case of Slovenia that stripped citizenship from uh, thousands of people in an event called the Erasure, deleted them off a database and told them they were no longer citizens um, despite them having been born and raised um, in Slovenia. So this has this kind of very bizarre singling out of a certain set of people and then telling them you no longer can live here is very unusual. But it it does have other other cases around the world, but very, very rare, very little heard of. Um, very few people know about the case of the erasure in Slovenia, for instance. Um, the recently attention has been brought to the case of the Rohingya, who were also stripped of nationality, Burmese nationality. But again, these are very isolated cases. They're very unusual. And everyone agrees that they run contrary to international law. So Slovenia has had a number of wins in the European Court of Human Rights. The Rohingya, everyone agrees, have, are entitled to citizenship and all the rights that are, go along with citizenship. So, you know, no, no one I've seen um, 
in international law and in the international community seems to think that this is a normal way to to treat people and to you know to degrade them to evict them to exile them yeah well it's got yeah i mean I've, I've i've been to jerusalem a few times and when you walk through the city you see a remarkable difference not only between the east and the west but also between different neighborhoods um it's it's a very uh, um eclectic mix of people but what is very obvious is the allocation of resources is is heavily um uh, oriented towards um the uh, i guess the israeli side the west, the west side and israeli settlements on the east side um if you put together sort of that impression and also what you're talking about with this very particular treatment of Palestinians in Jerusalem, is there an underlying motive behind this that we that we can identify? I cannot speak to a particular motive. I can quote, however, the former mayor of Jerusalem, Teddy Kollek, when he was speaking on infrastructure development in East Jerusalem. And he said, and I quote, Yes, we installed a sewerage system for Arab East Jerusalem and improved the water supply. Do you know why? There were some cases of cholera there, and the Jews were afraid that they would catch it. So we installed sewerage and a water system against cholera. This same mayor, so now I'm ending the quote, this same mayor, Teddy Kollek, pursued for many years a policy of separating what he called Greater Jerusalem from the rest of the West Bank. The stark inequalities are made even more concerning when you think that tax collection in East Jerusalem is actually intense. So the taxation, for instance, on retail outlets is, is by the square footage. So shops which sell large bulk items for you know, not necessarily very much money are being taxed on the space that their shop has rather than their actual income or profit and so on. So with all of this taxation, you're still seeing the inequality that you just described. Yeah, it's a pretty uh, <coughs> powerful quote there. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what happens now? We've, we've just had, um, as you mentioned before, the international community has uh, has. has condemned Trump's announcement. Um, the, the the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, has said that uh, the United States is no longer, no longer want the United States to be the uh, sort of the, the moderator for talks. Um, and, uh, and and uh, senior Palestinian officials have told, have said that Mike Pence, the vice president of the United States, is not welcoming Palestine. But it, what it goes to me is that all of what you've described in Jerusalem and and we we can look at reports for for the bigger picture in Palestine as well the 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 abysmal conditions in Gaza the the restrictions on movement in the West Bank all of this was occurring anyway and uh, uh, and and yet the peace process uh, everybody was still talking about the two state solution and 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 everybody was still talking about it, uh, negotiations as if they would be successful um the the fact that this kind of inequality and, and these conditions exist um and, and yet people were still talking about two-state solution. Doesn't that strike us as a little bit as disingenuous? And that maybe this Jerusalem announcement, although problematic, 
isn't really the main problem here. There is an argument that Israeli officials currently use, which is that an announcement from the United States president makes less of an impact or is of less importance than the de facto control that the Israeli military has over most of Jerusalem. So the argument goes that we control Jerusalem, all of Jerusalem. We have controlled it since 1967 and half of it since 1948. And what the United States says or does is less relevant than what we have done by force over the past decades. And in some of what your question asks, I hear an echo to that. And the important question to ask then is not whether that makes Trump's announcement and speeches and so on any less important, but whether the important question to ask is when will reality match international law? And what Israelis would like to see, or at least the Israeli government at present would like to see, is some kind of legitimacy to what was obtained by force, by conquest. And international law at present does not recognize changes made through conquest. It does not legitimize them or grant them legitimacy. And so while the Israeli officials are correct in that de facto control is there, and you are correct in that that stark inequality is there, what everyone knows but is trying not to say is that it completely lacks legitimacy. And that in that context of illegitimacy, for the United States to add to that and say, oh, we agree with this illegitimacy. In fact, you know, if we say it's illegitimate, then, then it is. Well, that, <laughs> you know, just because two people now or two nations now, two states now are saying that it's legitimate, you know, neither is in a position to say that. Um, and it's not legitimate. You know, the rest of the world knows it's not. And that's why you have, you know, 151 votes in the United Nations saying it's not legitimate. Um, because if if we were to allow that sort of thing in the in the world community, if taking things by force is legitimate, then what's to stop each country from just going for the free for all? Right? Roll out the wagons, roll out the tanks, gear up the nuclear <laughs> tip missiles and so on and so forth and let's go for a claim of someone else's territory let's you know let's let's redivide the world what what is blocking that at the moment is international law is people saying well no that's not the legitimate way to go about things we go to the international court of justice when we have border disputes we go to the international criminal court when we have disputes regarding criminal acts in the international community no, it is international law that is sort of keeping everyone, all right, at bay, saying, well, we, if we follow the rules, then other people will follow the rules, and that will give us security, respect, safety, rights, 
And frankly, that's an easier way to live than spending all of your, you know, GDP, GNP, all of your income as a state on arms. And so, you know, I mean, we can either all arm ourselves to the teeth, cut our health systems and our education systems, deplete our environmental resources, exploit um, people and arms ourselves to the teeth, or we can respect international law. And that is, what is at issue on this statement on Jerusalem? And it is so surprising to me that the media portrays this as a tribal fight. You know, these these two nationalist, ultra-nationalist tribes are fighting over something that they say is sacred, and they're, they're just going to fight it out, and, um, you know, you pick one side or you pick the other side, but whichever side you're on, you're on the side of some kind of tribe, right? You're on the Israelis or the Palestinians, and in the media, it's even reduced to kind of individuals. You know, you're on Netanyahu's side, or and they don't even refer to the Palestinian president. They they take the camera off to Gaza, um, and and film someone else, and they say, okay, well you're on this side, but that's not the reality, and and it's framing it as this pathetic tribal dispute, um, you know, almost as if people are supposed to be beating their chests, is is completely inaccurate, and the issue of Jerusalem at present is an issue of legitimacy and an issue of international law. And what you actually have is lined up on one side, indeed, ultra-nationalists, as represented by Netanyahu and his government and military. And then on the other side, you have the rest of the world saying, hang on, we still believe in international law. We still want to hold to resolutions that have been passed and reiterated year after year, for some 60, 70 decades. Uh, sorry, 60, 70 years. Um, and that is the real debate on Jerusalem, but that is sadly not what is consistently being presented. It is a debate between legitimacy and illegitimacy and which should rule, whether we should have a rule of illegitimate conquest and force or whether we have, should have a rule of international law. And my, my preference would be to live under the rule of law. And I would imagine that that would be the preference of most peoples of this world, including Israelis, if it were put that way. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And, and just while you were speaking, the examples occurred to me that, of course, in 1991, the United States led a coalition under, uh, based on exactly that premise, that I Iraq's invasion of Kuwait was a crime of aggression. It was taking territory um, without, uh, you know... A, contrary to the to international law and to international norms and and uh, the the United States went to war along with a lot of other countries to to, to put that to to sort of roll that back and also where recently as Russia has taken um, territory in Georgia and in Ukraine everybody's been up in arms about this this is a, a, a totally contrary to international law um, and not considered legitimate by any uh, anybody really apart from the Russians themselves and presumably their supporters in in Crimea well that, that's a really great point thanks Nadia so one one more question then if you if you were to have a crystal ball and you were to to look into it and and, uh, and, and, and ask you know in 10 years time what will the situation 
in Jerusalem and the broader Israel-Palestine context be? What would you what do you think you would see? Well, ten years is a very short time, and the evictions that I talked about—the fourteen thousand Palestinians denied the right to live in their homes—and um, you know, as, as I said, the tens of thousands of others um, who had previously been evicted in previous decades—that pattern will continue. And it will be ramped up. It will be escalated. The 3,000 people, half of whom are children, made homeless by demolitions, will, that number in Jerusalem will increase. Um, that, th- those are two patterns that have shown themselves in the past and will continue for the next decade. And, and that's a very sobering and saddening thought because the victims are completely ordinary and innocent people, many of whom are children, who are discriminated against on the basis of being born Palestinian. And that is the kind of thing that we thought as humanity we had outlawed. If not, you know, from the beginning of time, at the very least since the acceleration of international law in the 1940s. Another prediction is that, you know, Israelis are already, many Israelis are already quite uncomfortable living in Jerusalem. Many have said to me that they choose to live somewhere other than Jerusalem because they don't like the the extremes. They, They don't like the atmosphere of extremes of extreme dehumanization of Palestinians and frankly anyone who would disagree with the notion that the area must be ethnically cleansed. And so many people who are uncomfortable with that, who are not necessarily discriminated against, so unlike Palestinians, they may have the ability to live in Jerusalem, but they will choose not to. They will opt to leave as they have been opting to leave for many years now. And this has been documented by Israeli geographers and others. Those are some very quick um, perspectives on the people who will be affected because it's the people that we think of first. It's the families that we think of first. In terms, however, of the actual physical geography of Jerusalem, that has been changing also, and that will continue to change. The denuding of the area, of trees, of um, areas, as people say in Arabic, where you can just simply smell the air, uh, that that will continue. And it wreaks havoc on the landscape. Um, And of course, on the indigenous livelihoods of Palestinians who farm on the hills, um, you know, the, they're, they're olive trees, which take decades to bear fruit and to mature. And some of those trees are hundreds of years old. They refer to them as Roman trees, as in they herald from the Roman era. Uh, you know, those 
there's a history of those trees being destroyed. It continues into the present. Palestinians do what they can to defend their trees, to protect the way that the landscape is at present. Um, but as with home demolitions, there are, you know, bulldozing and arson and serious threats to the landscape and the livelihoods of indigenous Palestinians. And other geographic changes are taking place as well. Ancient and historic graveyards are being dug up and made into other <laughs> forms of land use. So people's remains are being exhumed. This is happening on an ongoing basis. The latest flare-up was at the end of the summer. And um, there are photographs, uh, there are eyewitness accounts. This is not going to stop. And I anticipate that in 10 years' time, the graveyards that we see on the grounds of the old city of Jerusalem will not be there. The people who are buried there will be dug up, um, the graveyards removed, and all traces will be erased, and no memory of that um, will be allowed to continue because this has been done with other sacred sites and important sites in Jerusalem. The ability to carry out business and to live an ordinary life in the old city will become more and more difficult. Very well known is the deliberate um, creation of uh, serious and debilitating addictions within the old city by what are misnamed security forces of the Israeli government. That will continue. It, um, it destroys lives, it destroys families, and that will, uh, that will sadly continue. But so too will Palestinians continue to live in Jerusalem, just as they continue to live throughout what is today Israel, throughout what is today Palestine. Palestinians will continue to live in Jerusalem. It will be a struggle, and they will have a hard time knowing where the food will come from for their next meal. But they will continue to live there. And that will irk people who are looking to commit ethnic cleansing. And Netanyahu, as well as, as, well as others, have been quoted in conferences on how they wish to curb the Palestinian population, on how this is important to them to, to reduce the Palestinian population. They have not been um, shy to explain to use the terminology of ethnic cleansing, members of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset, have spoken of Palestinian children as snakes and snake nests and so on. So ethnic cleansing is an open and explicit policy that will continue, but Palestinians will continue to live nevertheless in Jerusalem and to withstand the onslaught. And perhaps in the next 10 years, a growing number of Israelis will draw the line and say, I stop at ethnic cleansing. I, I do not wish to be a part of ethnic cleansing. I do not support ethnic cleansing. Certainly that is the case for Jews all around the world. But it will be a very interesting scenario if that were to be the case for a majority of people in Jerusalem. 
But certainly around the world, people will say, stand up and say that Israel does not speak for me. Israel does not stand for me. And the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians in Jerusalem and elsewhere is wrong. And I think that in 10 years' time, the stand will not be for symbols, religious or otherwise. It will be for people. And it will be not only to counter the dehumanization of Palestinians, but to counter the dehumanization of those who dehumanize Palestinians. Because to carry out ethnic cleansing um, takes something away. It, uh, you know, we have seen that. And, and that, that, is, that is perhaps where people 10 years from now will stop and think. I think that's a really interesting insight. I mean, I think it's really helpful as well that you that you point out what's I think obvious to many of us who work on this, but uh, uh, sometimes lost in the media uh, circus around it. As you, as you said, this caricature that so many Israelis are against this situation themselves. I mean, they may they may have their own nuances. They may not entirely agree with my standpoint or your standpoint, or whatever. But some of the the worst excesses. Uh, of this situation, then they're not accepted by many Israelis either, and and it's actually just a, 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 a particular, you know, groups of people, hardliners, political elites, and uh, and extremists who, who 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 push these conditions, and everybody else is is forced to go along with it. I think that's a really important point to to make. I think there is one last thing, and that is the importance of people all around the world to visit Jerusalem because first-hand experience is like no other. And while many call for, you know, not going to Jerusalem, I would say the opposite. I think it's extremely important for people to see firsthand the situation in Jerusalem the inequalities that you described so well, Phil, and to see for yourself and to be able to speak from first-hand knowledge, from first-hand experience. And nothing replaces that. And this is by far not a messianic call for people to go worship for any particular um, cause, but rather for people to see Jerusalem as a world city, which which it is, and to, to recognize the indigenous people of the region, to recognize the impact that colonialism, colonialism has at present, in the past, and potentially in the future, and to recognize our role as international citizens of the world in either changing this or allowing it to happen, but at least, at the very, very least, bearing witness to what is happening. And it can be a humanizing experience to see firsthand how beautifully people can be resilient and welcoming and and have, at the core realized the major battle is how to retain your own humanity 
that that is the major struggle is is how to be the best parent you can be, the best professional you can be, the best citizen you can be in a situation in which ordinary matters like taking your child to school are a struggle. And the beauty is that it is a wonderful opportunity to see how people can treasure every precious moment of life because they know how much of a struggle it is to bring that precious moment about. So the happy moments that take place in Palestinian families in Jerusalem are a happiness like no other. It is the kind of appreciation of life that it would be similar to drinking a glass of water after going without water for days. It is that strength of appreciation that is a joy to participate in and to share. And for that reason, I would recommend anyone with the means, with the interest, to visit Jerusalem. Yeah, that's a great. That's a great point. That is. I mean, you. you yeah. Uh, also, go 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 to uh, the West Bank as well, and 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 Nablus is where I did my research, and I would, there's nowhere quite like it. Hey, it's an incredible place. Uh, it really, to be honest, just really, really blows your mind when you when you get to see somewhere like that. It's such an amazing place uh, with an amazing history and incredible people. And uh, yeah, thank thank you so much, Nadia. I really appreciate your time and uh, and insight and knowledge and expertise and everything. Thank you very much, Phil, for doing the program that you do. This podcast series was originally produced with the help and support of the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa, and we're still extremely grateful to them. It was produced by me, Dr. Philip Bleach No. If you'd like further information or to get in touch, find us on our website at globalizationcafe.com, on Twitter at Cafe Global, or on Facebook, where you'll find updates about forthcoming shows and other research and activities that we're up to.